Uh, we'll need your Bibles tonight, friends. Uh, either your phone if you didn't bring a Bible, or, or you can go and grab one of the church Bibles. Those are on the back table. We're going to be turning a lot of pages tonight, looking at different ways the Baptist Catechism points us back to the text of Scripture, so much so that we could really call these sermons, Let's Turn Together, because we're going to be saying that quite a bit. Now, we're going to get in the Word. That's the point of the Catechism, even. It's not that we're exalting a Catechism up high above the Word. We talked about that last week. The Catechism is going to help us get into the Word. So, what I was saying last week, or one of the things that I was saying last week, is that a catechism is a, is a tool for us to know what the Bible teaches. It's subordinate to the Bible. As the uh, London Baptist Confession says, that the Holy Scriptures themselves, they are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So things like creeds, catechisms, confessions, they help us to come to agreement on what the Word is actually saying. But it is, it is the Word that is sufficient and certain and infallible. A catechism is a tool, a tool that when utilized rightly in a community, it is a good way to promote a unity around the Word of God. I think I mentioned last week that the particular Baptists rewrote their confessional statement in 1677. There was some heresy going on among the Baptists, actually, uh, with what to sing in the church. And they took the liberty in 1677 to rewrite it and kind of form it and base it off of the Westminster Confession so as to also show unity and fellowship and a um, like-mindedness with the Presbyterian churches. Uh, the Baptists simply took it and copied it and then made changes, changes that we as Baptists would say were, would be improvements, of course. Um, the point, though, was to say, like, look at how much we have in common. Uh, yes, we have significant differences. Yes, uh, there are things that prevent us from joining in local membership, but they don't mean that we're a different religion. They don't mean that we can't leak arms for the sake of the gospel and do ministry together. And the Baptist catechism that we're using tonight is very much like that relationship as well. If you were to look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, over the vast majority of the questions, over 90 questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Baptist catechism that we're using are exactly the same. Over 90 of the questions are word for word exactly the same, which makes sense when you consider the similarities of the Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are 16 different questions, and, and, in, and in the two catechisms, um, part of that difference is because the Baptists added seven more questions than the Westminster um, has in theirs. So, as I was saying last time, we're being greatly helped in our study by a pastor who wrote a commentary. His name was Benjamin Badome. Uh, he's an 18th century Baptist who in 1752 published a, a commentary on this catechism. And so by and large, we're following his outline tonight. We're kind of basing uh, this, these series, these lessons off of what he already went forward and did. And he, you know, even in, his, in the preface to his book, uh, he actually says that you know, I'm just doing what uh, Matthew Henry has done. Matthew Henry's done this, and I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the same type of thing, but here with the Baptist Catechism. We may, um, part of the difficulty in this is there's different versions of the Baptist Catechism that exist. And so, uh, you know, if you look at a version and it's a little bit different than the one that we're going through online, um, just know that you could look at the one that we're going to be using. It's the fifth edition. It's the one that was published in 1693, but it's all on our website as well. And we ordered a couple books. And hopefully those will be available maybe next week for you guys that we could pass out to y'all and you all could have maybe like one per family, that sort of a thing. Uh, we're just doing one question tonight, but future nights we might do two, three, four questions. Depends on how, uh, how it all plays out, but we're just doing one tonight. 
So I figured we could begin with the first question, and I'll state it, and then we can answer it all together. So question number one, who is the first and chiefest being? God is the first and chiefest being. So pretty short and not too hard to memorize, I, I think, I would hope. It's very, even though it is short, it is very much a loaded question and answer filled with God-honoring truth. Like I was saying earlier, uh, the Baptist Catechism is, is based off of the Westminster Catechism, but this is an important difference between our Catechism and the one that the Presbyterians hold to and that they use. The Baptists start different than the Presbyterians. And don't get me wrong, I love the first Q&A in the Westminster. Um, does anybody know what that question is, actually? What's the first question in the Westminster, Westminster Confession? Evie knows? What is the chief end of man, right? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and love him forever. Um, it's a good question. It's something that we should know, certainly. And some later Baptist catechisms added in. They added it as a second question. Uh, others I've seen on, on the fourth. Ours doesn't. But it's important to know that we're starting with God here tonight. Who God is and knowing God who has with it certain implications. Now, obviously, the phrase God is is a topic that we could probably spend many, many, many nights on, perhaps even the rest of our lives, just sit, thinking about this phrase that God is, or that He is self-existent, He is all say. But we're going to look at something specific tonight and consider some of the ramifications from this specific uh, area. When we think of who God is, we're really in the category of theology proper, what it means to know the Lord. That's, that's really the, the, category, the doctrinal category that we are thinking of when we're thinking of the character and the nature of God. And the catechism is going to look to establish something specific and foundational for the rest of what the catechism will teach. And so we'll see... Oh, did I not do that? Well, I'm sorry, guys. Here, let me get this set up here. This should be... There we go. Well, you guys all knew it without me even saying this, so so I have that up there. So well done. I'm impressed. Um... The, this first question is setting us up to really better understand the rest of the things that are going to be taught in the catechism as well. So like I said last week, the catechism kind of works systematically, builds off each other. Sometimes that will be more obvious than others. And so what we have in this first question and answer is a twofold declaration about who God is. A declaration of the greatness and the superiority and the majesty of our God. Two things to focus on, two truths ex- expressed. First... It is that God is first. And then secondly, that God is chief. That he is the chiefest being. Now, if you notice on your outline, if you have that, the catechism is basing this answer uh, to this question off of Scripture. It's not just stated outrightly without evidence. I've got some other texts up there that we're going to look at as well, obviously. And so usually with every catechism answer, there's going to be verses attached to it, not exactly proof text, but kind of, kind of that. Um, and those are there to help you. Uh, if you're doing, if you're using the catechism at home and your family worship or just your personal devotions, you know, when you, when you come to those uh, sections of scripture that are attached to the answer, go look at those. Take a look at them. Check them out. See what it is that they're saying. You might find that they fit really well. You might find that they don't fit really well. And you might be able to think of other passages of scripture that, that maybe even fit it better. And if, if you think of something like that tonight, we're happy to discuss that, of course, as well. Um, whether you're using uh, the catech- catechism on your devotion or just even here, you know, we're going to go back to the Word because, again, it's a tool to help us get into the Word. 
So let's do that now to start off with. Let's turn together uh, to Isaiah 44.6. And I don't have that on the screen for you because we will be turning together. Isaiah 44.6. What we have in this chapter in Isaiah is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah about the promised blessings that he has for them. He's chosen Israel. Uh, Israel, the nation, is a type of Christ. And there has been, um, in already Isaiah's prophetic utterances, there's already been mention of an individual servant that God has chosen. And he's going to mention it again in coming chapters as well, too. And so at this point, God is speaking about his servant Israel. And he says, in, and he's talking about his plan of redemption and things about himself. And then he says here in verse 6, Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So you see it there, a direct statement from God himself saying what the catechism is saying. I am the first and there is no God besides him. Uh, let's, let's take a look at a couple chapter overs because the catechism also cites Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, verse 12, and we'll also read 13 as well. It says, God speaking and revealing himself, truths about himself. These are things that you maybe would not you know, just pick up from the revelation of nature. These are things that God has to accommodate to us and tell us. So verse 12 to 13 says, Listen to me, O Jacob. And Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So it is God who created and sustains the universe. He has chosen or called Israel, and he confesses of himself once again that he is the first, and, and the last for that matter as well. Isaiah notes this another time as well. This is, this is an important truth. That God is wanting people to understand through the prophet Isaiah. Turn back into, into Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, verse 4. I'm just going to move that so that it doesn't disappear on me. Isaiah 41, 41 4. Here God is explaining why it is that he should be feared and why it is that he should also be trusted. And he says this in verse 4. He says, Who has performed and done this? done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. So we have this declaration from God, from Yahweh, this self-attesting, which is really a, a triune attestment, right? A Yahweh is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, one divine being in three uh, persons, not noting that He is the first. This language uh, this revelation from God is similar to us, I would think, from the New Testament as well. If you're familiar with uh, this, the saying, I'm, I'm the first, I'm the last, you, you've heard it before in the New Testament, I think you might know. Let's turn to Revelation, the revelation given to John. It's chapter 1, verse 8, so very last book in the New Testament. There, 
we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So again, uh, we see it again. The beginning and the end. Alpha and the Omega. It's the same message that we see in Isaiah. And look down a little bit as well. Look down to verse 17 here in this chapter. Mine is on the other column. Verse 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Who's talking at that point? Jesus, right? Yeah, I've got my old copy, so I've got the red letters, which is just silly, right? Because all of these are God's words, so it's, it's all His words. But, yeah, that's Christ saying that, that He's the first and the last. Again, this is self-revealing proclamation from God. When we are saying that God is first, we are wanting to say that what God has said about Himself one more example of God saying this concerning himself, and then we'll talk about what it means. Uh, chapter 22 in Revelation. twenty-two, twelve, and 13. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So again, this is Jesus talking, of course. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And he is saying about himself that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And it's interesting that Revelation is even actually, it's bookended by these two statements, right? You have Jesus saying this in the first chapter, and you have him saying it again here at the close of this last chapter in this Revelation to John. Man. Um, the question for us, though, is what does it mean to say that God is first? What does that actually mean when we say God's first? I mean, we see God is declaring it about himself, right? That's abundantly clear in Isaiah, in Revelation. That much is obviously very true. But what does it actually mean when he says, I am the first and even I am the last? Uh, there's a lot that this, that this phrase actually means, and we're not, we wouldn't be able to cover it all tonight. But let's listen to some commentary from John Gill first. This is from his commentary on the passage in Isaiah. Um, so this is what he says. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, I am the first and I am the last, the first cause and the last end of all things in nature and providence and grace. All things are of him, through him, and from him. All things were made by him in creation, and for his pleasure they, they are and were created, and all things are disposed of in his providence for his own glory. He is the first in reconciliation, justification, and salvation, and all are to the glory of his grace. Or this is a, par a paraphrasis of his eternity, who is from everlasting to everlasting, without beginning or end, the Alpha and the Omega, then the same is said of Christ. So he goes, he, he alludes to the passage in Revelation as well. So you see in the mind of John Gill, at least, this phrase that God is the first and the last, even, it's quite expansive. And it doesn't have with it this idea that, you know, by saying that he is first, is that he's somehow, before we were created, that God came into being. That's not what this means. Because we think of ourselves as having a beginning. And so when we hear God is first, what, what he's not saying is that he had a beginning as well too. It's not saying that same sort of thing. That's not what John Gill was saying in his commentary at all. 
Rather, God is eternal. He's the eternal creator who, according to his wise and sovereign will, decided to create and bring into creation. So we are the effect of the cause of creation in the will or according to the will of God. You know, God desired to create and then he moves to create. And so he is the first. He is, he is the reason we exist. He is the reason we continue to exist, and we would, we would instantly disappear if not for the providential sustaining of God in all of creation. He is the first. Yeah, John? Oh, we were talking about that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's mm-hmm. the first and the last, but it's also one of the great I am. It's ego eni and I am, just like what he told Moses, right? Right. And why they wanted to summon the giant that was created. So. They knew exactly what he was saying, and that's why they wanted to kill him, right? Because he was claiming deity by Jesus saying that. He's saying that he is the eternal God. He is the first cause himself. I know. Right. That can't be substantiated. Absolutely. I agree. So, he is sovereignly the first of all. Not that he came into existence before, God is eternal, but implying that everything that exists and happens flows from God's wise plans. He can do all things, and his plans can't be thwarted, as Job confesses. Uh, Gary Smith in the New American Commentary, so a modern commentary, says this about God being the first and the last. He says this phrase, it says that it's a phrase that is not just a title, but also a description of his unique sovereignty over all events. He knows what happened in the past and has planned and revealed to his people some of the things that will happen in the future. This is not an abstract philosophical statement of his eternality, but a reminder that his works span the whole scope of history from the beginning to the very end of time. This is who God is. This is what the Catechism is looking to assert for us here at the very beginning. Not that God came into existence before us. Not that, for example, like, or like for Silas is my first son and then Oliver is my second son. But that God is totally other than his creation and all creation depends upon him for everything. God is first. So fundamental to our, to our faith, fundamental to what we believe, is what theologians have called the creator-creature distinction. Maybe you've heard of that, that term before. It's this idea that there is a fundamental difference between the creator who is God and then all of his creation, which is us, which is angels, which is anything in the universe. And the challenge that we have as God's creatures, as created beings, is that we can't comprehend who God is because he's the creator. We're the ones who are created by him. We can apprehend who God is. We can begin to understand what he's like, but we can't have total, complete knowledge of who God is. He's much greater than us, and it is by God's accommodation to us, to us or towards us and his revealing himself to us through nature and through his word, his word especially, and through conscience, that we know our creator. And the catechism is going to touch on these things in more detail in, in questions coming ahead, so I don't want to get too much ahead of myself. The idea in saying that God is first, 
the main idea behind it is it's wanting to communicate that God is not like us. He is eternal. He's not temporal. He never needs anything, whereas we always need. He is independent, not dependent. He is the first and the last. He's the very reason that we exist and continue to exist. And so we have this declaration that God is the first of all beings. And so Benjamin Badom, in his commentary, breaks it down a number of other different ways, helpful ways that we might understand and think about God being the first. Other aspects from God's word, which, which we can see that God is uniquely the sovereign creator. And for the sake of time, we're just going to consider one verse for each subheading. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 8.6. And there's other things we could do here as well that we could look at, just but for the sake of time, we're not able to touch on everything. So God is the first cause of all beings. 1 Corinthians 8.6. It says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we whom are all things and through whom we excuse me, in whom we exist. So think of the question. Um, you know, why do we exist? Why why are we here? Why do people inhabit this earth? I did a comet strike this giant rock in the out in outer space uh, millions of years ago, and then life forms came to be because of random conditions until what we have what are called humans? Absolutely not, right? God is the first cause of all beings. We are from and for the Lord Jesus Christ we just read. From and for God. God is the cause of us. There would be no humanity if God did not make man in his image to be his representative and his ministers upon his created world. Also, God is the first in creation. We don't have to turn to Genesis 1. I assume most of us know this. We read there that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So stop and think about that for a moment. There was a beginning. That's obvious. There was a beginning, but God was already there. There was, there was no beginning for God. He has no beginning himself. He creates the beginning. He sets time in motion, as it were, and he decides, he determines to create, and so he begins. From our point of view, that becomes the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. And so God is first in creation. He's the cause of creation. He is before creation. He's the first. And we also recognize that God is the first in providence. Acts 17, 28. So turn with me to Acts 17. Paul is here in Athens, here in Acts, is being recorded by Luke, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's gotten the attention of some philosophers. And these philosophers enjoy hearing something new. Philosophers haven't changed much in all of the years. And the people who want to hear from Paul, they want to hear his message. So Paul is invited to this public space called the um, Areopagus. What is how's Areopagus? Thank you. Um, and so they can hear what he has to say. And what Paul decides to do is take a, philo a philosophical view that was held by some of them and from there preach the truth of God. So look at what we read in verse 28. It says, In him we live and move and have our being, and even as some of even your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In him, in the creator, we live and move and have our being. God is not some deity who simply got things going and then backed off 
and is watching everything unfold as a as like some sort of cosmic uh, moviegoer. Now, that's not what Paul is affirming here. What he is saying is that God, in fact, through providence, which means his, his, his working in, he, he controls events. He's involved with the events that are happening all throughout the universe. He didn't, he didn't just wind up a top and then back off and watches it spin. That's not what God has done. He's involved in our being. In Him, we have our being. He's in every millisecond of every day sustaining us, continuing through His providence, working out all things according to the purpose of His will. Did it to me again, huh? This is why the Westminster Catechism includes the question about man's chief end, actually. Uh, Because God is first and chief, and we'll consider that soon, the fact that he's chief. Our purpose is to give him glory and enjoy him forever. And that is why, is because in this life, in our life, God is providentially interacting with us. Things aren't happening by chance outside of God's purposes. Everything, everything is God's providence. Sometimes I know we always talk about providence in the sense of like, when it's something good, we'll say praise God for his providence. Uh, and it's good to do that, of course. We want to praise God for what he's doing in our life. But the reality is that the doctrine of God's providence, the reality of him being first, means that all of life is, prov- is providentially happening according to God's counsel and his will. There's not a moment of it that is God is not interactive in with it. So, I think, it, I think it's back up now. Um, there's a lot more we could say. Pastor Benom goes into to note other causes that are um, that he goes on to note that there are other causes that are subordinate to the first cause. Uh, also, that God is first in love, that He's first in the world of grace, He's first in government, He's first in authority. And again, in our understanding of these things, in any way in which we may consider God as first, it's not about God being the first in like an order, in a sequential order so much, but it's about God's sovereign control over all things. That's what it means to say that God is first. And because God is first, there's application for us in our lives. How should we then live because God is first? Bedom is really helpful here in his commentary. He mentions um, a few things that we'll look at. Number one, God should be first in our thoughts. Okay, so Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the, the psalmist is considering the, his thoughts. Of the, he's considering God's thoughts and just the vast amount of them. And he's in awe of God for that. And he's commenting on his ability to count God's thoughts. And in verse 18, he says, He says, I, I awake and I am still with you. You know, I, our minds, because God in first, our minds should be continually on God, thinking how we should please him. God is first. Well, is he first? In our thoughts, I think we should be thinking how we should honor Him, thinking how we should live lives of worship unto Him, all because God is first. Secondly, uh, God should be first in our esteem. We won't turn to Psalm seventy-three here, but you can later. God, as as the first, sets in course our lives, but we need to remember God in all of that. Uh, we're, we're not at liberty to just then forget about God and know that He's ordaining all things. We should esteem Him most of all. Not other people in our, in our life and place over Him. The psalmist says, Who have I in heaven but you? you know, God is of the utmost esteem in His life. 
on, on earth as well. He's going to say, there is nothing on earth that I desire more than you. Is that true for us? How can we get there if not? You know, meditating on the reality that God is the first. He is alone worthy of our highest esteem. We should esteem others, of course, higher than ourselves, but the highest place goes to Yahweh. Thirdly, uh, we should give ourselves first to God. Uh, because God is first, we as His creation should you know, give ourselves to the Lord. Even more so for us as Christians, right? Uh, I mean, the statement is an absolute truth for all people because all people are created in the image of God and created by God. And as, but as we've been learning in our Sunday morning uh, sermons recently in 1 Corinthians, we've been purchased with a price. And we should use our members to honor the Lord. Now, we're to be living sacrifices unto Him. We should give ourselves first to God, and that would very well direct our lives in the things that we won't do, right? I mean, if we are to give ourselves first to God, then how can we enter into any sinful activity? How can we enter into any transgression of God's law? When we do that, we're not giving ourselves first to God, right? We're giving ourselves first to our flesh, to our own desires. And we do that, and thankfully there's no repentance in the Lord. But because God is first, we have good reason to give ourselves first to Him, especially for us as Christians, because uh, we love Him as our Redeemer. And, you know, the world doesn't know that, but the whole world should give themselves first to God as well, because He is their Creator. So God is the first being, and we only really scratched the surface at that point tonight. And again, some of the truths, some of the doctrines that attach to the reality that God is the first are going to be dealt with specifically in coming catechism questions, and we'll deal with that when we get there. But we still need to get to the second part of the Q&A. So what is, what is meant by saying that God is the chiefest? Well, God is uh, the chiefest being. We use the word. It's not all that common today, I suppose. But it carries within an idea of preeminence, like John was mentioning earlier, uh, of having the most influence, of having the most value or the most importance. Uh, that, that's what is meant essentially by the word chief. So the point here is that God is the most chief, the chiefest. He's the principal, the most eminent, the most distinguished, having the most influence, commanding the most respect, taking the lead. Of course, He is sovereign, the most valuable, the most important. He is the chiefest. So again, we have a couple of places in the Bible to consider. The Catechism cites Psalm 97.9. So let's turn there together. We should be in 139 now, so just a couple of pages to your left. Psalm 97.9. There we read, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So you have this exaltation. Yahweh is above all gods. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, we've been mentioning this other gods actually a couple other times. I wanted to save it till we got to hear Psalm 97.9. Uh, that doesn't mean that there are other beings out there that are comparable in power and might and being to God. There is one God, and he's three persons. His name is Yahweh. He's revealed himself as I am, ego, I, me. And he is uncomparable. There is none on the same level as him. Yet the scripture often refers to God. And sometimes, it, depending on, and it's nice in our English um, Bibles because you'll, you know, they'll put a lowercase g so that you get the, get the point there. They're not saying, talking about a being that is exactly equal to God. What is being talked about are False gods, perhaps they could be angels or demons properly, but the point is, is one of comparison. 
in all of creation, and it all stems from God. He is first, remember. God is greater than all. There is none over him. There's not even any on equal level to Father. It's not, it's not, that, it's not that there's none over him, but there's some right at the same level with him. It's God is here, everything else is way here. Whatever is meant specifically by gods, whether, you know, the gods of you know, ancient Near East lands that people actually believed were true and, you know, you know weren't true, um, and perhaps were demons, whatever it is that is meant by God specifically, they are closer to us than they are to God. Yeah, we, the, the gap between Yahweh and angels and then people the, the distance between angels and people is much closer than it is the angels are to God. Does that make sense? It's, if we're thinking about comparatively here, God is totally other. He is chiefest. They're not, um, they're not equal to Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's turn to... Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's just a, a, a general statement, but um, I've always taken that, and I believe correctly, that other gods are a figment of your imagination. They are not spirit. God is spirit. These other little gods are not spirit. Yeah. But rather imaginary, Allah, imaginary. Yeah, for the most part, I agree. So it's difficult because the scripture does talk about like a divine council. What is made of that council? Um, in the so angels are spirit, right? If demons are angels, they're just fallen angels. They're rebellious angels. And so when we look at the the Hebrew. Specifically, what we read is often for the word God is Elohim or it's El. And so you, the, pre, the preface you'll have like El Shaddai or something like that. So the E-L meaning God. And so there's different times we'll say it. And some, like for example, if we think of maybe uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is a pretty good example. If we look at um, Genesis 1, it says, let us make you know, mankind in our image. Let us is Elohim, the plural gods. Right? So what is being said there? Sometimes people say that it's a um, that it's the Trinity. So it's, an, it's a it's looking Trinity that God is plural. Uh, Michael Heiser is a, a theologian who says that it's more meaning of the divine council. He's saying that he's speaking of like the angels that are around him as well, but they're not being made in their angels' image. They're being made in God's image um, alone. The the point that I'm that I think we need to think about is then so, but it's just in chapter one of Genesis, it only refers to God as Elohim. Then you get to chapter 2, after resting and his interaction with mankind, and it's the Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim, every single time. Until you get to chapter 3, where in chapter 3, you have the fall. And the devil, the serpent, is talking to Eve, and and he says Elohim, not Yahweh Elohim. And then Yahweh Elohim comes back in, and he he deals with cursing the serpent, and like that. And so, yes, absolutely, we're not saying that, like, Allah is some rival god that is, that is rivaling him. Or all of the Hindu gods are some rival powerful beings that are on the same level as God. Three gods or 
Greek gods, yeah, all the, yeah, the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, so for us, it's, we have less of that. But for uh, more ancient cultures, the Baals, the Asterisks, there's all, all over. And were those perhaps demons? Did they have power? Did they, they pray to them? Did they do stuff? I mean, we just read in um, Sunday school this morning how the, in Endor, the witch who is approached by Saul brings up um, Samuel from the dead. And if you read the text, it is basically just, it's Samuel. There's no going around that. But does this woman have power to do that? Well, no, God is the first. And so if, that, so if it did in fact happen, God was behind that sovereignly for his purposes to happen so that Saul would act, in fact be cursed. But there are spiritual powers. There are things that happen on a, on a level that we cannot see regardless of what they are specifically. I mean, we know there's different kinds of angels, right? We know there's like an archangel. So there might be these different levels. Whatever it is, whatever these little gods are, if they're just figments of people's imagination. I mean, think of Isaiah's scathing, sarcastic rebuke where he tells them, you chop down a tree because, so that you can uh, worship your and make an idol of and worship your God and then you use the rest of the wood that you didn't use to cook your food on. He just, I mean, savages them. And so, you know, but for those people, they think they're really worshiping God. And it, whatever it is, a demon, just a figment of their imagination, it's not Yahweh. And it's so far beneath Yahweh. Even if it's a demon, it's so far beneath Yahweh. Yeah, I'm, I'm not denying yeah. demons. I, I'm, I'm thinking there, in the spirit world, there would be gods and then there would be demons. There would be angels, holy angels and fallen angels. Yes. Right. Um, so when the people have been worshiping idols, there's there's no um, there's 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 no God standing behind in the spirit world standing behind that. There may be a demon, might be a demon, right? But not yeah. God. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and there's none that can compare. Yeah, Ivan. Have no other gods. Absolutely. Money can be a god to us, whatever it be, you know. So it's anything really that's put in place over our creation. That's a good point. Uh, we, amen. It is. Even the, the term Elohim that we translate, we see it as God. What it mean, really means is like might and power. And so, you know, it, we, we use it then in context of things that, are, that have a power and might over us, whether it's a true thing or not. The main point, though, that the Bible is super clear about um, in all these verses is that God is on a whole other level. There is no comparison. God is the only God, um, true as far as, you know, no 
a beginning, no end. There's none like him, preeminent. Yeah, go ahead. I got to rem- I got to try to figure out where we were. So go ahead and say what you were saying. <laughs> So, man, so this is so difficult. So if we look at, if we look at like ancient Near East literature, this becomes very, very difficult because then we're, we're imposing, we're looking at what people believed in the time and then we're comparing that to what Scripture says. And granted, the, the culture of Scripture is A&E, right? It's ancient Near East. It, it's in there. But we derive truth from what God's Word says. Uh, that's the source of truth, the only sufficient standard rule for us, like the confession notes. And, and we go from there. I mean, uh, so in a similar examples with covenants. So uh, we, when people think of covenants, it's like, oh, well, here's you know, Yahweh entering to covenant people. Well, that's what the people in other ancient Near East cultures used to do. So now Yahweh is doing it. Well, I tend to think, like, why do we go that way? Why don't we just say that Yahweh and his sovereignty, because he is first, he had these other cultures use covenants because that's what he was going to do. Because he is the God who ordains all things according to the counsel of his will, and he brings it about. So any of the Benahim, um, Heisler's book is really interesting. I, I'd recommend it to you guys. It's a good read. It's called The Spiritual Realm. He has a bunch of other, he has a couple other books too. Unseen Realm. Yeah, The Unseen Realm. Uh, but yeah, anything else? No, thank you. I was talking to Mommy, I think. So let's, look, let's turn to... So God, Yahweh is above all other beings. Let's turn to Psalm 83. 83, 18. Let's start at verse uh, 17, actually. It says, Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. So the psalmist is crying out for vindication for his enemies, from his enemies. And then he makes this declaration, this wonderful statement that God is the most high over all the earth. Perhaps there's, there are some that are high. Perhaps there are some that have authority and power. But God is the most high. He is the chief above all else. He is of the highest rank. And so again, what does it mean for, then for God to be chief? Well, God is the only chief. Exodus 15.11, turn with me to there. We're going to see that Elohim once again. So here, uh, there's a couple of rhetorical questions that are asked. You ask them, you know, not because you really want an answer. You ask them, because the question in itself is giving you the truth, right? It's implying the truth. So Exodus fifteen eleven says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the Elohim? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious in deeds, doing wonders? And of course, the answer is, no one is like you. No one is like Yahweh. Only you, O God, are awesome in glorious deeds, majestic in holiness, doing wonders. God is the only chief. There is none like him. We saw that earlier in Isaiah as well. 
Uh, for sake of time, we'll skip this question, but God is the chiefest. If we're supposed to, if we could compare things, I mean, God is the chiefest, and that's what it actually says in the catechism. Thirdly, uh, God is chief in heaven and on earth. We've already looked at Psalm 97.9, which says God is over all those on the earth. So let's look at 89.6. It says, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? So not only on the earth, but also the heavenly beings. Nothing in creation at all is greater than God. God is chief in heaven and on earth. He has the highest position. And we are made to think of, again, the creator-creature distinction, right? Because God is the creator and the only creator. He is by nature above everything else. He is the chiefest. Now, application-wise, Benham is good here again. So we find God is chief. How then should we live? Three categories for us to be in view. Should, number one, or God should be chiefly loved. Oh, did I skip that one? I might have on my, so on your note sheet, the first one is that God should be chiefly loved. I know, that's the second one. That's the second one. So I skipped a slide. But on your note, on your outline, God should be chiefly loved. And think of uh, the great commandment, Luke ten twenty seven. Let's start at verse 26. Jesus is talking to a lawyer, and not a lawyer like the title, like Johnny Cochran or whatever, but you know, a person who knows the law of God. Okay? A person who knows the commandments and applies them, helps others to apply them to their life. Um, he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 28, he says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? In verse 27, he says, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, because God is who he is, because he is the chiefest, he is to be chiefly loved. Again, this is, this is law. This isn't gospel. We don't love God uh, to make him, to cause him to save us. We can't, we can't even do it perfectly at all. But because God is who he is, he is worthy of love. He is worthy of love at the highest position. And as Christians, we love God because He first loved us. We love Him out of the overflow of our hearts because of the way in which He has loved us so completely, so perfectly in Christ by redeeming us, by washing us, by sanctifying us, and by justifying us in Christ. But God is to be chiefly loved, more so than anybody else. And, even, and how we even love our neighbor, how we love our fellow men, is a display really of our love to God because it is God's command for us to love our neighbor as well. Secondly, and so this one's already up there, God should be chiefly feared. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus is talking here. Oh, sorry, 26. He says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Um, what he's talking about is those who will persecute you. 
So Christians are, are going to be persecuted. He's talking about it. So has no fear of them. He says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Satan, no lowercase g, gods, no Elohim, can destroy your soul and body. Not every body they can, I suppose. A demon can do something like that. But not just so. That is God who can do that. That is Yahweh. It is Yahweh alone who has that. So this fear, you know, it's a, uh, it's a fear that for us as Christians, we should still have a fear of the Lord. But it's not a fear that would cause us to shy away from God and to not seek Him. It's a fear really that, and a, a reverence that should cause us to go seek Him because he, we want to do what He desires. Uh, because of we know who he is. He is the first and the chiefest of being, and he's loved us so great in Christ. It happened again? No, it's okay. It's the last one. So the last one is um, happy are those interested in him. Okay, The last application about God being the chiefest is happy are those who are interested in him. In Psalm 144.15, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Think of all of, you know, Ross mentioning all these other gods that people might have and worship. They're never truly happy. They might think in their minds that they might be, but they're disillusioned. They're, they're offering, you know, their goods and their livelihood to that which isn't worth, worth, worth it. God alone is the chief. And so those that would seek him, those that would honor him, those that were true happiness and joy and peace is found, even through trials. Uh, knowing that Christ is always going to be with us. Uh, you know, we, Christians are not free from trials. We go through trials, uh, even sometimes even greater than those in the world. Sometimes, you know, you read the Proverbs, it talks about how it seems to be going well for the lost in some ways. Uh, they're, they're rich, they have no cares. And here are these people who want to serve the Lord, and they're poor, and, you know, they're needy. Well, it is still better happy to be with the Lord and to have the comfort of having Christ with us as he's promised to be with us forever in the Great Commission. He'll be with us always. So, so friends, that's the first catechism question. Again, these are systematic. God is first and the chiefs will be building off each other. Sometimes it'll be obvious that that's the case. Other times not so much, but this lays a foundation for us. God is the first and chiefest beings. Let's pray and then we can discuss some more if there's uh, some more questions as well. Our Father in heaven, to be glory and honor, and we thank you for this time to be together in your word. We thank you for how this catechism points us to it, uh, causing us to think of these different ways in which you are first. Uh, We see clearly that you have revealed yourself to be so. Uh, We wouldn't know that from looking up into the sky, though the sky does tell of your glory. We wouldn't know that from gazing into the forest or over to an ocean. We would see see the fact that there is a, a creator from that, that there is logic and, and reason behind it all, but we wouldn't understand that, that you are the first, that you are sovereign over all things. You hadn't sovereignly revealed it to us. So help us, Lord, to understand this. Help us to live in such a way that would honor you and glorify you because you are the sovereign creator with none that can compare to you, and that because you are chief. Please, Lord, be chief in our hearts. Uh, do away with the things that vie for that place that is rightly yours, the highest of places in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that you would be exalted in our every thought. Give us the mind of Christ that we might honor you properly. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.